Welcome to the Vintage Voices podcast. It's a podcast that we have towards decision makers, corporate decision makers, startups, CEOs, so forth. In the past, we discussed corporate innovation and transformation. Today, you're our special guest, Jeffrey Smith. Thanks for joining. Oh, you're welcome. Leading the discussion today is our VP of Value-Added Services, Orly Glick, who leads relationships with hundreds of corporations. Orly, thanks for joining. Thank you for having me again. So Jeffrey Smith is a Senior Managing Director at CDPQ, where he leads the digital transformation of investing at a very large pension fund. Is that correct? One of the largest in Canada? Uh, That's correct. So CDBQ is an institutional investor that manages several public and parapublic pension plans and insurance plans in Quebec. At the start of 2019, CDBQ managed assets of over 300 billion Canadian dollars. Jeff joins us with a particular expertise in adopting digital transformation offerings and programs for major vertical industries from large corporations like Arago, HB, KKR. Orly, it's all yours. Thank you, Evan. So Jeff, we're so honored to to speak with you. Um, We've seen so many uh, methods of pre-digitalization processes and you have so much experience with this. So here at Vintage, we've seen top-down approaches, bottom-up approaches. So like the top-down would be, or let's start with the bottom-up. The bottom-up would be, you know, corporates go to Silicon Valley, to Israel, to Singapore, they see lots of startups, they get excited, and then they go back home and, and do the homework. Uh, we've seen top-down approaches where corporates are looking for their pain points, um, understanding what they're looking to do strategically and technically, and then they're looking for startups that match their requests. These are the methodologies that we've seen. Have you um, seen similar methodologies? Have you seen other methods of digitalization journeys? And what have you seen that worked and what have you seen that did not work? Um, Yeah, uh, well, so I think that's actually a very good list of the conventional ways that have uh, manifested themselves and how uh, organizations have approached the issue of major change. You know, I guess if there's a common thread, and and it's not that common, is that whatever triggers the interest in changing uh, sometimes it's an uh, entrance of a new competitor. Sometimes it's a changeover of top leadership. You know, sometimes it's an economic recession or something that uh, you know triggers some kind of a challenge to the existing commercial model. Sometimes it's an activist investor, right, or uh, you know, or an extreme, you know, a corporate raider who comes in and and either pushes the board to make radical change or buys the company and then makes the radical change themselves. Um, any of those can be triggering events that cause an examination of what what do you change, how do you change it, and what should be the better business we have when we're done uh, to make it worth it. Uh, in the private equity business, you know, we've often used the expression, is the juice worth the squeeze? And that's a big question you have to answer up front about major change. You know, is the outcome gonna be worth all the pain and agony that we're gonna take the organization and its people through in conducting change? And that's a pretty important question to answer up front. So each of those methodologies you described generally had some, some sort of rationale behind it and said, this is the least painful way, generally, <laughs> sometimes less expensive, sometimes uh, less onerous to the organization or customer base or whatever, uh, that we think we can approach change with. So sometimes they bubble it up from the bottom. Sometimes they create a 
innovation function, which is job it is to go out and research what everybody else is doing and bring back those ideas to test them for relevance uh, with this business. And a lot of times it can be the top guy who uh, for one reason or another gets inspired or challenged to have to look for a, a, a way to change the organization to perform better. And, and I guess that, so the thing I would say that ought to be in common, and sometimes it isn't, is uh, a vision of, from, from the front of what improved performance is supposed to look like. You know, are we going to be closer to the customer? Are we going to have a higher, you know, uh, return on invested capital? Um, are we going to have happier employees, which reduces our employee turnover? I mean, if you think back a, a couple of years, and actually this is still going on in India right now, you know, a couple of the Indian uh, large firms like Infosys were experiencing churn rates in their professional organization at a 50% level per year. And you just can't recruit new software engineers fast enough to replace the ones who are leaving. And so I, I remember one year uh, Infosys made double digit raises to their entire workforce twice during the year for base salary to just try to stem the flow of talent that was leaving getting recruited by competitors. That sort of situation may cause you to have to change too, because that would trigger for a company like Infosys an interest in getting a lot more automation into the work they do so they are less dependent on that software engineering workforce over time. And so those sorts of things, any number of those kinds of situations may trigger the, the, at least the appetite to look at change. And then uh, if you think about the ambition for performance and improvement that accompanies it. Now that combination, there's some sort of sweet spot for an organization where they decide they're actually going to do something. Um, you know, I have uh, uh, been seen, actually seen this happen where sometimes a company is studying the topic academically and they bring in um, a guru or a luminary who is so charismatic and inspirational that that triggers a desire to change. Uh, you know, Michael Hammer, uh, rest in peace, uh, was a very well-known thought leader in the area of re-engineering back in the late 80s, early 90s. And Michael, Michael's was so energetic about re-engineering that uh, he often talked about the three times in a company's life cycle where they should re-engineer. He said the first is when you're in trouble and you're behind and you need to catch up. The second is when you're neck and neck with your competition and you want to pull ahead. And he said, and the third one is when you're out in front and you want to pull away. <laughs> so basically his message was, you should always be re-engineered. That kind of guy with that kind of message can often trigger a company to start looking at whether change might be worthwhile. Fascinating. So, so let's say that indeed, you know, you mentioned like when the CEO gets excited or when there are radical changes or like trigger events. So what, when these happen, what are the ingredients in the organization that, are like must-haves that have to be there in order for digitalization or digital transformation to work well? Uh, I think first and foremost is a clear strategic intent. What are we doing this for? I mean, the answering the why question is the single most important question, and it's usually the hardest one to answer. Why are we going to do this? And, and in answering that, you basically start designing the profile of the future state. Because if the why is, well, we, why? Because we need to be closer to our customers. Okay, then customer centricity is now a factor in whatever the future state's going to be. You know, we need to be much more, much speedier in our response to the marketplace. It may be in terms of speed to launch new products. It may be in terms of speed to fulfill orders. 
and maybe in terms of speed to source, where we're dependent on key raw materials. So our ability to find them first and get them uh, constitutes success. So think about upstream gas, oil and gas exploration. You know, but whatever that speed thing is, that may be a vector that we've got to be looking at. Quality may be a huge issue, and, and it's still under, underestimated, I think, as a factor driving cost and, and uh, delays. But, you know, if you measure speed to deliver based on delivering it correctly, not just speed to deliver something, you find that oftentimes the real lead time from start to done is actually two times what you think it is. Because uh, I'll take an example of somebody who's pretty well documented, Procter & Gamble, um, struggled for years with their ability to ship accurately into Walmart, Walmart warehouses in the United States. And they're shipping full truckloads of disposable diapers, not the most elegant or sexy, you know, kind of uh, item to be shipping. But if you're ordering different sizes of diapers, as Walmart wants to have some for new infants and some for three-year-olds who aren't potty trained and all the guys in between, and they've got a mixture of Pampers versus Loves, there's two different brands and there one's a little more upscale and higher price than the other. Each one of those is a separate UPC code that you have to do inventory planning, replenish, and then manage in your inventory separately. Well, if the order has a certain mix because they have a certain expectation of demand pattern in the store, and so they want to have 20% of them being babies and 30% of them being, you know, one to two-year-olds and the rest of them being kids who are larger, and Procter is stocking the, the truck in order to ship it, and they find that they're short of the big ones, so they'll send more baby ones to fill out a full truckload. That doesn't help Walmart when they get it. To them, that's a bad order, right? The shipment doesn't match up with what I ordered. It's not matching my inventory plan. That stuff I'm getting shipped from them, if I put it in inventory, it may not sell for a long time, so it's going to cost me in terms of my cost of working capital. And Walmart tends to take the stuff, stick it on a truck, ship it back, and also deduct that off the invoice. So it creates a whole bunch of quality issues. And from Walmart's point of view, Procter did not successfully fulfill the order when the truck showed up. It's not fulfilled until all the things they ordered on their PO, in fact, got delivered like they were supposed to, which may be another week longer than what Procter thinks because they got the truck out the door on time and the truck showed up at the warehouse on time. So these difference in measurements, difference in perspectives, and the lack of a recognition that there's a cost of quality and compensating process for it becomes a really big issue in its own right. So fixing that can create speed and lower cost and improve customer satisfaction all at the same time. The Proctor was attacked that, and they eventually did. But that's an illustration of how speed, quality, and cost can all be really important performance characteristics to influence return on invested capital. And once I've designed those things and said the customer centricity is gonna be the heart of it, now I've got a vision for what I want to be. And if I look at how I am today, a gap analysis becomes a pretty straightforward exercise because I'm not where I am in some of these places. And then I can start planning actions that are going to close the gap. And that becomes my change plan. And then I look for ways to do it in a way, first of all, that is um, eliminates everything I can, simplifies those things that remain. And then I automate very intelligently what I'm going to do so I can integrate it. And that, that methodology of eliminate, simplify, integrate, automate becomes uh, the final kind of step in the process in designing specific detailed solutions that then you can implement with your action plan. And when I think about digitization, 
which is just another chapter in a very long story of people trying to use technology as a way to improve the way they perform. Um, that notion of eliminating and simplifying before you automate is still one that too many people don't do. Instead, they automate what they have today, which Michael Hammer called that manumating, because you're taking a manual process and automating it as it is, instead of rethinking how it ought to be, given that you can automate it now. And as he used to point out, uh, one problem with manumating is if your current process makes mistakes, when you automate it, you make a lot more mistakes. <laughs> yes. So, so those things become critical factors in thinking through change. But at the heart of it, it's starting by beginning with the end in mind, knowing what the characteristics of higher performance are you're aiming to have in that future state. And as a result, when you design your change plan, you know how each one of the elements in your change plan are going to contribute to moving the needle in those uh, KPIs you're going to have to measure that future state. Now that you have the strategic intent and the initial framework, tactically, how do you or have you seen this done um, on the change plan? So how do you translate these to exact pain points um, in an organization? Usually organizations are so large and, and sometimes, well, oftentimes siloed. So how do you do? Do you take external consulting firms to help you figure out the exact pain points of each a strategic issue? Do you run workshops for every business unit separately, maybe uh, then together, maybe involving strategy or the innovation team? Because there are so many silos in the organization. How do you do these work streams where also you have like a, a holistic view of all the pain points? Because sometimes uh, we, you know, we work with corporates that have like six or seven business units and each and every one might have different problems, but looking at all of them from like a 30,000 feet view could be really helpful to uh, in the digitalization process where you can help them all with some solutions that would, uh, you know, look at the, at the, at the complete picture. So, so how, do you, how do you do it tactically? Well, um, I start with what Edward Deming said, which is what gets measured gets done. So... Uh, you start one key thing to look at early on is who benefits from the change and who's hurt by it based on how they're measured and compensated. And the silos you referenced oftentimes are unintended consequences of a compensation and performance measurement model that's built around somebody's idea of an organization design that when they did it seemed to make a lot of sense. But what has happened over time as the market has moved, as customers have changed, as maybe the company has entered and, and, and left different businesses may no longer make the sense it once did. So first thing I think about is let's make sure everybody's going to benefit from the change who's going to be involved in it. And that means I'm going to create a metric and a compensation model that rewards them for moving the company in the right direction. So that has to be transversal. It has to be cross silo and cross company. Um, and it's where everybody benefits you know, Benjamin Franklin a long time ago said, we should all hang together because otherwise we will all hang separately. <laughs> that was something yeah. he said. And you got to create that attitude about the people who are going to be part of the change. Just hang together, guys, because otherwise it isn't going to work. And, and that creates an atmosphere of collaboration that is truly vested in self-interest versus asking everybody to be a good person and, you know, take one for the team. Um, so that, that's a really important 
early dimension of this in order to get motivation where you want it to be. I think the second point you raise about what kind of resources and expertise can be helpful to do this. There's no doubt that external resources with consulting firms have their place. I mean, if I consider that most companies don't want to do a transformation more than once every five years because it's hard and it's painful. And once you're done, you'll kind of want to enjoy the result for a little while before you go do it again. So that means that your internal skill set for transformational work tends to be uh, a muscle that doesn't get exercised every day. You know, while you're doing it, it does. But in the interim, it atrophies a little bit. And the nice thing about some consultants, the good ones, is that they're doing it all the time for multiple clients. So they can bring an active, tuned, highly professional skill set and methods and tools to augment what your own company is going to do to get something going and get it done right. Um, now, that in no way allows any organization to hand off the responsibility and authority to the consultant. Because when the consultant leaves with their last check, the company has to live with whatever's there. So my experience on both sides of the table, both as a client and as a consultant, has proven to me that at least 50% of any consulting project that goes wrong is the client's fault. At least 50%. No matter how good or bad the, con the consultant's performance was, the client, if they were doing their job and managing the consulting properly, would have, would have limited the downside and would have done a lot better job of getting the upside. But many, many clients, you know, think, okay, I've got, I'll name some names and no, no disparagement here. McKinsey, great firm. Bain, great firm. BCG, Accenture, Deloitte, all great firms. And yet all of them at one time or another have clients who've been unhappy with the result of a project. And my message is client, look in the mirror because odds are you didn't help the client, the consultant manage successfully uh, if there's a project that didn't go well. So there has to be this explicit understanding and accountability on the client side to somebody who is the single sponsor, the one throat to choke that the CEO can call and say, where's our project? Not where's the McKinsey project, but where's our project? And the answer includes McKinsey, but it also includes all our own people because that's the other piece of all this is done well, change programs with whatever level of automation and, and digital dimension they may have in them have to be driven by the people inside who are going to live in the resulting architecture. It's not, you can't do it to them. You have to do it with them. And that's a big, big, big methodology choice you make. And unfortunately, some consultants tend to do it to their clients. And uh, the result is one that's difficult to sustain. Uh, those that do it with them are the ones that create sustainable change that actually gets the performance you're looking for. So those are all elements I think about tactically and organizing. And however you mix and match the skill sets, inside versus outside, you know, technology versus business function versus, you know, change people, uh, those combinations are things that have to be truly somewhat sourced independently of where they come from. And everybody's got to have the same motivation. Consultant contracts, for example, I would write where they get paid based on our result that we're looking for in the outcome. So time and materials, no thank you. Not interested. Because that's motivating you to spend more time, not motivating you, motivating you to get me my result. Um, and a lot of consultants, when they're put at risk like that, are, are not as confident in their own abilities, and so they won't sign up to it, which helps you then select the people you do you want to work with because <laughs> they are confident enough that they will sign up to it. Well, those are some of the things that I think about um, and some of the things I've seen, well, things that have worked and that didn't. Uh, you know, I walked in on a project uh, situation a 
few years ago, and I eventually became the client there, where the consultant had happily taken 2x the budget for consulting fees, and the project was in a ditch. It was in a ma major disaster in the making. And um, so I stopped the project. I sent most of the people home who were on the project team from both the consultant and from our own side, and we replanned the whole thing. And when we turned it back up, we gave that consultant a chance to recompete for the work alongside two other firms. And the two other firms were selected by our team. And the result was a much more successful project. And the company ended up IPOing at 23 euro and got up as high as 70 euro before some of the more recent economic headwinds, but they're still comfortably in the 50s. So it's been a very great value creation story uh, for a company that's done very well off the backs of that project work. So I've seen consultants who were motivated the wrong way and, and ones that are motivated the right way. And they can make a great difference for good if they're properly managed by their client. That's super interesting. And, and so I'll take that point that you mentioned. I mean, we're speaking now about incentives and, and, and KPIs. But, and, and, and you were touching upon this earlier. You know, what is the role of HR internally in the organization supporting and encouraging people to innovate? So should innovation, you think it should be a part of every employee's GNOs? And, and how, how have you seen that or have you seen that working? Because I think it's, it's, pretty, it's a pretty new area. I'm not sure that every company really that is doing innovation really started doing that on the, on the HR level. And the second question is, how do you cope with, with fear? I mean, startups are agile. Innovation is, is agility. And everybody speaks about fail fast, but really in, an in a large organization, people are afraid to lose their jobs and people are afraid to, to fail. So how do you uh, cope with that? How do you prevent that from you know, uh, paralyzing people? Those are all great questions um, and, and, and uh, very important topics around this. I think, so first of all, on the role of HR, too often, even now, uh, despite a lot of publications and a new generation of folks moving into professional HR roles, there are still people who hand out the balls and the bats at the, you know, at the picnic, and they run payroll. Too much of that mentality around the function that somewhat puts it in a box. I think you know where HR organizations create an organizational development or a training, you know, and, and professional development kind of a, a function within HR, they get a chance to reach into the business a bit more and influence things. Um, now, one of the challenges with HR is they don't necessarily have very good project management skills because that isn't something a project manager doesn't think, oh yeah, I'm going to go do HR project management. You know, think about a project manager is going to construction or they go into aerospace and defense or they go into software and product development because that's where projects are done. People don't think about HR as a natural home for projects. Instead, it's more process and, and cadence of repetitive cycle, like payroll being every two weeks, or uh, you know the W-2s and W-4s getting printed every year in the U.S. for tax purposes, or annual performance reviews. So there's a, there's a need for HR to adopt a mindset about what its role is, and, and the CEO really has to decide that's what HR does here, and then get a CHRO who lines up with that vision. And a lot of companies don't do it that way. So that's a, that's a bit of a gating factor on how effective HR can be in the process. Um, the performance and whether or not they do that, HR usually owns incentives and performance and comp. And so in my, my mind, you have to recruit them and involve them at that point 
in your change program, whatever else they do or don't do. And bringing HR on board, in my mind, is kind of like bringing a corporate internal audit on to do the business case for your change program. So rather than having a business plan for a program where the benefits and costs and so on are all calculated by consultants, which means that when the CFO who doesn't like those numbers points his audit people at it, they chew it up and spit it out, you know, 15 things that are wrong with your assumptions. And so then the business case is suspect and so is the project. If you have internal audit put the numbers together, they're not going to chew each other up. <laughs> so you've kind of, you've, you've co-opted the enemy in the sense of getting yeah. the business case yeah. to be one that will be accepted and becomes the target for the organization. And HR can be a similar thing, bringing the incentives and comp people in early to help plan how you're going to get that transversal set of uh, KPIs and transversal um, incentives then solves the problem because the people presenting it aren't, aren't you. The people presenting it are the people who are the incentives guys. And most of the issues that would normally be stumbling blocks or internal objections, they've anticipated because they're normally the ones making them. So I think a lot of recruitment and involvement of the internal players from the relevant functions in the planning and solution architecting can really set the stage for a much faster and higher quality implementation and deployment. Um, because you kind of get all the speed bumps you don't know about out of the way. They're up, they're up early and they're out in front of you. So you can deal with them. Um, so those things are things I think HR does uh, well. You know, depending on the quality of their training and professional development capability, the, the user procedures, the user training, the org reskilling, those things that may be a part of your change plan could be tasked to them or them along with some consulting help to have enough arms and legs to get it done. That, I've seen that work. Um, but it, it is dependent on how capable your internal function is to begin with. If what they tend to do is do nothing but search the internet for distance learning courses that they sign licenses for, and they don't actually do curriculum design and instructional development themselves, they're kind of limited in what they can do for you in that case. Um, but if they do have those skills, and they do have some org development kind of skills, then they can be very helpful and very effective as people who co-own the issue internally. So HR can play a big role. Uh, it kind of depends on how good they are. Uh, one question that this sort of project can raise is, should we be better at this internally? Maybe we should be recruiting a higher caliber of player in HR in order to play the role, as opposed to you know, renting consultants that then go away. And, and some companies choose to upskill uh, as a result of this because they'd like to have that capability in-house on a more regular basis. So I've seen a number of variants of how that plays out. Jeff, going to a different department, so we, we had HR. What about procurement. So, I mean, typically in large organizations, uh, procurement has, you know, long forms to fill out. It's a long process. Sometimes I see startups filling out thousands of questions. Um, so, so on one hand, obviously, I mean, the organization has to protect themselves. Um, on the other hand, this might be very heavy for startups. Um, how have you seen this in the past? Have you seen this work and when, where have you seen the success and the failures? Well, I'm going to, I'm going to, I guess, uh, put a little different um, label on the question you're asking, because to me, this is a symptom of something more fundamental. How do startups and early stage companies sell into enterprises? That's the question. 
and and most startups are not good at it. They don't understand enterprises. They don't understand how the enterprise procurement, acquisition, and deployment cycle works. And so they struggle with their direct salespeople to be able to figure out who to talk to, let alone who has a budget, let alone who's in the approval cycle. And, oh, geez, now corporate procurement's coming in, and there's a whole TNC thing I got to do and a master service agreement, blah, 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 right? That that That's struggle of ignorance about how enterprises buy, therefore, how do you sell to them, is a very common startup company problem. I sat with a guy from a very large PE firm who runs their uh, tech, tech portfolio a couple of years ago. And at the time, I was running a large, or large, a growing small startup that was an artificial intelligence company. And we had built a go-to-market motion that was aimed at enterprise sales because I had come from that world. And we were selling like hotcakes. And in the past, our company had sold nothing. So he was curious since he was on the board, uh, just what it is we were doing. And I walked through how we built the go-to-market motion and how we had our sales guys deployed and you know, what we were doing. And, and he said, you know, he says, I sit here in the Valley. I think if you built a business that was based on being a broker for startups into enterprise, that might be the biggest value play. <laughs> In the valley this year, <laughs> yes. because it's such a common problem. You get an entrepreneur, they may be a PhD in nuclear physics, and they have a great idea and some patents, and they've got some venture capital money backing them to go do something. But when it comes time to commercialize it, where it's got to become a real product I can sell to a real customer and make real revenue off of, the wheels come off the bus because they don't know how to do that. And oftentimes they recruit salespeople who know how to sell into small companies, but struggle to sell into big ones. So there is, there's this fundamental issue. How do you sell to enterprise that I think startups have uh, as a common challenge? Um, some people go through distributors. Some people get acquired by a strategic and then the strategic sales guys take over. Uh, that happens a lot. I know that happens in Israel is one of the major, you know, exits that uh, startup, startup entrepreneurs oftentimes are forced to have to do. Um, but if you're going to run your own business, try to grow it yourself, and enterprise is the market as opposed to consumer, uh, you have to confront this issue. And, and both direct channel and indirect channel become relevant. You know, picking a big distributor who has a well-established enterprise sales organization might be a good answer for you, but recognize they're stripping margin off you and you're selling to them at wholesale and they're getting retail. So those are things you have to keep in mind. You're trading down on your margin in order to trade up on volume and, and on a channel that already has a sales organization. If you're going to do it yourself, and maybe it's a highly technical sale where you need to do it yourself, a distributor can't do it for you, then you got to think hard about how you're going to reconcile what procurement does vis-a-vis -vis what the economic buyer is. And I always pull out the old Miller-Hyman book strategic selling, which has been around for a long time, because uh, it's still good. I mean, we're still selling to people and organizations. That has not changed despite 21st century and having mobile apps. And in the real world in the 21st century, knowing who the economic buyer is, knowing who the technical buyer is, knowing who your coach is, knowing who procurement is and what they do, knowing who the gatekeepers are who may say no but won't say yes, knowing who the competition is, know who their coaches are, and whether they've got a technical buyer that's, you know, skewed towards them. All those things are things you pull out in what Miller Hyman came up with called the blue sheet. And I think it's electronic now. And you document that relationship map of the complex sale you're about to make. 
And then you build your sales strategy to bring in the economic buyer, win the technical buyer, neutralize the gatekeeper, you leverage your coach and block your competition. And that's how you do complex selling. That is how you sell into enterprise. And most people who haven't done it don't know it. And yet what you figure out once you've done it a few times is that machine can be something you feed additional products into over time. It's a machine that you can carry as a commercial model from a startup to a startup to a startup. So the best sensorial entrepreneurs do figure this out. And then they've got a playbook they carry with them as they go from company to company with this kind of a commercial success pattern with it. So that's, that's a thing. And, and if I have one book I'd recommend to people to read, it'd be strategic selling on this topic. That's how you deal with procurement. Jeff, how much do you attribute? I'm kind of a huge believer in, uh, in, in you know, people, person-to-person interaction. Uh, you know, there's lots of research showing that 60 to 80% of mergers and acquisitions fail, depending on the research that you read, um, due to cultural differences, for example. How much of the success of corporate startup collaboration, in your opinion, is attributed to people rather than the technology? You know, the technology could be great, but, but people. Uh, about 99.9%. <laughs> not, quite, not quite Six Sigma, but close. Because <laughs> reality is organizations are organizations of people. And customers are people and suppliers are people, and employees and colleagues are people, our shareholders are people, and, uh, um, when you, and our competition are people. So you think about all these stakeholders of various types, and you use the old Michael Porter five forces model to map them out maybe, but the fact of the matter is, is that there are people's names in all of them. And uh, I remember uh, years ago, I worked for a large consulting firm. We were developing a new methodology for uh, strategic information planning. And I was on the team that developed, designed the methodology and built the documentation for it. And we had a big quality assurance review with a number of our senior partners before we launched it. And somebody decided to invite a firm psychiatrist because we had a guy who was retained as a psychiatrist to do leadership reviews and evaluations and that sort of thing. So this guy sat in. And we had a four-hour presentation that morning and uh, lots of debate back and forth about what we had in, what we didn't have in, sequencing, what you could do concurrently, and so on. And we kind of get all done right before lunch. And David, the psychiatrist, had not said anything. And so the guy who was chairing the meeting said, David, you haven't said anything yet. You usually say stuff. You know, do you have a view on this? David said, he says, well, I've just had a fascinating morning. He says, I think this uh, demonstrates a tremendous amount of outstanding professional work and thinking. It's logical. It's rational. It's comprehensive. You know, the documentation fits the task descriptions to a T. He said, there's only one small problem. That the problem is you're doing it with people, and people are not logical. They're not rational. Yes. <laughs> they follow the rules. <laughs> and we all looked at each other and said, damn, he's right. <laughs> and that led to a robust afternoon conversation around all the human factor issues we needed to incorporate and anticipate in the methodology. Because this is something we were going to spread out to, at that time, around 50,000 professional practitioners worldwide. And they were going to use this when they went in to plan and execute uh, information strategy practice. 
So by adding the people factor in with a set of tasks and a set of questions and a set of key deliverables that needed to be addressed by the organization, we explicitly brought HR into the org chart we suggested. You know, so that became a standard proposed factor for that company. You know, we told, we said, don't leave our HR out, bring them in. Day one, we want incentives and comp at the table because that's how we're going to motivate your youth, your people in your organization to change their behavior. In fact, and this kind of gets to your point about culture. I mean, Peter Drucker's famous quote, the culture eats strategy for breakfast is true. However, I think the and in that is, and if you want to change the culture, you change the compensation. So, and, and the reason why I say that is twofold. One, some people say, well, I'm not coin operated. I'm motivated by values. You know, I, I play to a higher standard. Well, good for you. You may very well do that, but we're going to pay you 20% less if you don't do it this way. And that person will have to swallow hard and decide if their values and all that other stuff they were talking about is worth the 20% pay cut. And for most people, it's not. And so either they will leave and we'll go recruit somebody to take their place who does want to do it the way we do it, or they will change their behavior in order to get their full paycheck. And then we'll get the result we're looking for. Either way, it's a behavior change, right? It's not a personality change. We're not going to influence somebody's, you know, fundamental views of life and, and what makes things important in life. That's the role of, of, uh, of commercial organizations. But we sure as heck can influence their behavior when it comes to doing the work for customers, uh, making our products and services, uh, fulfilling them so that customers are happy, and working with colleagues in a way where the colleagues feel good every day about the job they have. Um, and if they can't do that, then we'll go find somebody who can, you know, that, that to me is how you get at the culture change issue. Um, and, and I hear a lot, I read a lot about hand wringing around culture and you know, how culture takes generations to change. I don't think that's true. Um, I think it's more takes courage to change culture, not time. Uh, and the courage involves changing how people get paid and how they get measured because generally speaking, people want to perform well and they want to get compensated and rewarded for performing well. And so by playing to that aspect of people, regardless of culture or geography or ethnic background or language, one will find performance improvement if you uh, aim them in a different direction. Jeff, this has been wonderful. Um, thank you so much. You've enlightened us with your insights and and allowed us to tap into your experience. I can't thank you enough. Is there anything else that you wanted our listener to learn um, or wanted to uh, summarize or to say some final words? Well, since we're on digital, and I, I've been pretty light on that word in this uh, conversation, I want to make a, a couple comments about digital and digital transformation. The first is, is that uh, a friend of mine, Tom Davenport, occasionally writes a column for the Wall Street Journal in the U.S. Um, in the technology uh, technology category. And several years ago, Tom wrote an article where the headline was, what the hell is digital transformation anyway? Question mark. <laughs> that was the title of the article. And his point uh, at the time, and one that I contend is still true today in 2019, is that digital transformation is over 80%, nothing more than a marketing label, for technologies that up to now have not been adopted in significance. So when you ask somebody to tell you, well, what's digital transformation? They start talking about AI, they talk about cybersecurity, they talk about mobile, they talk about cloud, they talk about security, 
They talk about virtual reality. They talk about big data analytics. Uh, they talk about uh, augmented reality, robotic process automation, and so on. So they have this list of things that are all products or products and services that vendors have failed to create a business case for up to now. And that's why they haven't sold a lot of it. So now they're putting a new label on it and saying, well, you got to do digital transformation. And when they say, well, what is it? Well, it's all this stuff in our catalog. <laughs> yeah. you know? so, so I'd say 80% of digital transformation is architecture and fableware version 2.0. Um, and I just caution anyone in the corporate space who has responsibility for the topic to be very careful about defining what they mean by digital transformation before they move much further along. Because the, the marketplace, the vendors want to define it in a way where they can sell you stuff, not in a way where you're necessarily going to really create value. Now, the 20% that is different relates basically to something that I first encountered when I was creating the digital strategy practice for a large tech firm. And that was framed, I guess, in, in, in really a simple way. Uh, if you were to put together a table where the columns were what I would call the three truths of digital and the rows are the four strategies that you can exercise against the three truths. The three truths are, number one, customers are already digital. So while we're all wandering around as companies and organizations trying to figure out what digital means, customers have gone off and become digital. Their purchasing and day-to-day -day behavior pattern is geared heavily towards leveraging technology and it has changed their processes in some fundamental ways. And by process, I mean decision processes which are the ones that matter. So that's, that's a first truth. Second truth is asymmetric competitors. By that, I mean companies that don't fit in your SIC code. They're not part of what you think of as your normal competition, but yet they are bringing a particular service or product into your digital customer's world in a way that the digital customer finds it easy to buy it, easier than buying from you or your competition. And the result is asymmetric competitors, that's truth number two, are taking your lunch money. Those asymmetric competitors are not trying to sell head-to-head -head against big enterprises. Instead, they're slicing away the biggest part of the margin without owning assets that require them to have to have an anchor of being a physical business. You know, the most, the most obvious uh, industry that has been experiencing this is retail banking and the fintechs who have attacked retail banks from a variety of directions with mobile apps that don't have a bank branch, don't have any tellers, don't have ATM machines, because they don't need them. Instead, you do everything through your mobile phone. And as it turns out, 63 million consumers in North America called millennials only do their banking through their phone. They never go to a bank branch, all 63 million of them. It's a 98%. They never go to a bank branch. They never talk to a teller and they rarely use an ATM machine. And the consequence, if you are Citibank or Chase or Bank of America, is you have tens of thousands of assets physically on your balance sheet called branches, and you have 100,000 or more employees on your payroll called tellers, and all of that is totally irrelevant to the 63 million consumers who you want to attract and retain as customers. That's what we call asymmetric competition. And, and those guys with all that physical asset and payroll are screwed. And that is an example of digital disintermediation. And that's the 20% that's real. 
where asymmetric competitors are attacking by going after the new purchase decision process that the millennials like to do, where the bank wants them to behave the way the bank is built, not the way the customer wants to behave. So truth number one, digital customers already. Truth number two, asymmetric competitors are out there taking your lunch money, leading to number three, which is the guys who are making this work are finding a real return on invested capital. So you don't just do it because of the gadgets. You don't do it because it's cool. You don't do it because it's, you know, anything that you might say is a qualitative thing. Instead, it's done because there's a very real business value that can be calculated and delivered to a company's P&L and balance sheet by adopting correct digital technology and digital strategies. So those are the three truths that are the columns. Down the side, the four rows are the strategies you might be able to do something about them with. The first one is to digitize your customer experience. And if you've been to a bank in the U.S., you know that all three of those big banks I mentioned have very good apps now, Citibank, Chase, and Bank of America. Very good apps. So they've kind of pl plugged the dike where the leak was in that area from where they were getting attacked by the pure plays. A second area is digitizing business processes. And that's actually where a lot of the money's gone so far in enterprises to do things they're calling digital transformation. So they're buying UiPath or IPSoft or Blue Prism or um, uh, who's the fourth one that runs around? Uh, I'll think of it. Anyway, there's like four, four major players in RPA and several secondaries. And all of them are trying to eliminate people and take most of the normal processing for things and speed it up and error-proof it uh, to get a much lower cost. Um, so that, that is a thing that people are actually putting some money into and seeing some results from. Uh, the third area, which is kind of intriguing, is for an enterprise to consider taking their technology and repurposing it into a new business model. Uh, the example I'll give you is actually in Europe, uh, E.ON, which is a large electric utility in Germany. Uh, they decided a couple of years ago after making a huge investment in technology refresh to separate their upstream production and uh, transmission distribution businesses, which are very asset intensive, power plants and trucks that go out, you know, to fix the power lines and all that kind of thing. Those guys are now in a separate listed stock on the London Stock Exchange called Uniper. And they pay a very nice dividend and the stock price is very stable. It's a utility type of a classic stock investment. The downstream digital business, which is what they called it internally, kept the brand name of Eon and it was listed separately on the stock exchange. And it's a technology play. It has none of the assets on its balance sheet. So very light on the return on net assets denominator, but it does have the technology and it's got 28 million smart meters connected through their network to all the homes and most of the businesses in Germany, Austria, and Switzerland. And the result is they upgraded all of the meters to be full function computers. And then they offered telephony, cable television, and internet service over the phone, the electric lines to the people who have those meters at half the price of what Deutsche Telekom was charging them. And Deutsche Telekom never saw it coming. Deutsche Telecom's like, wait a minute, the electric company is now my competition? Here comes an asymmetric competitor, right? Out of left field, who you never expected, who suddenly blowing the doors off your core franchise because you think you own the home if you're in Germany and you're Deutsche Telekom. And now I can get it for 50% off by buying it from Eon instead. 
and it's disrupted Deutsche Telekom's business and what they thought was their core franchise dramatically. And that's a digital transformation, digital disruption kind of play. So repurposing your business, I was an electric company, now I'm gonna be a cable TV, internet and telephony company. Very interesting play, right? Uh, in order to drive a market valuation, and that's what I'm gonna do is a market cap play. I'm not paying out dividends like the old style electric utility did. That's what Uniper does now, because that's where all the assets are. So that was a very thoughtful, strategic move that generated a lot of value uh, for shareholders. And that would be the third strategy is repurposing, which leads to the fourth one that kind of the other three depend on, which is you really have to make some investments in a digital platform of your own, whether you buy it or rent it or build it yourself to facilitate being able to do the other things. Um, and it can be aimed at customers. It can be aimed at your asymmetric competitors. But what it better do, regardless, is contribute to an approved return on invested capital. So when I talk through that with people and say, that's how you do think about digital transformation, are things in the cells, right, in that table I just created, right? You look at each cell in the table and you identify where you think your business might have one or more opportunities. That becomes the basis for a practical digital transformation plan. The 20%, those that are serious about it, don't look at the catalog first. They look at their business first. And they define either problems, you know, you use pain points several times in your comments, and that's one way to think about it. But the other is opportunities, right? Thinking instead about what could we do, what white space is there, what adjacency might there be that could be a real opportunity for us to be a growth company. And as a result, what would we have to invest and how would we have to do it? And I think, um, you know, back to the concerns about culture and people getting laid off and their fear for their jobs and all that, you mentioned that earlier. To me, the best story a company has is here's how we're going to grow. Because when you grow, people don't lose their jobs. You hire, you don't fire. And I've worked in companies that are growth companies, and I've worked in companies that did nothing but do workforce reductions. And the first kind of company is a lot more fun than the second kind of company. Jeff, this has been super, super interesting, so valuable, and I think it's uh, the most insightful conversation about digital transformation I've ever had. So yeah. thank you so much for that. And we'd love to uh, continue the conversation, maybe speak with you again uh, next time. Sure thing. It's been great to talk to you all.